What's up? What's up, everybody? Hey, welcome to the show. We are jumping into it. I'll tell you, today is going to be the first of probably several parts of a unfortunately very controversial topic in the church and in Christianity, which is eternal security. And I'm surprised that something that is such a source of hope and power for us Christians, and certainly so for the early church, that this is now being supposedly refuted and, you know, it's proven wrong or whatever. But, you know, this is just silly. And and my goal is to show you in this whole series how beautiful this teaching is, how much support there is for it biblically, how there's really no other way that it could have been, right? And we will look at the, so this is essentially the, the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. If you're not familiar with those, you know, Calvinism is basically teaching predestination, that God's doing the work through and through, that he predestined some people to be saved and some people to be not saved. Obviously, that's controversial. We're going to see why, but there is reason to everything. The opposite position is, well, it's our free will that, you know, basically activates salvation because we are the ones who choose to believe. And so, Really, this is a fundamental debate, right? Do we have free will? What's the nature of that free will? It's a pretty interesting debate, but unfortunately, a lot of people in the Christian world, even who ones who I personally respect, some of them really do not believe in eternal security, and there's a lot of problems that come up with that. So my goal with this series is to show you that there's a lot of biblical basis for it. We're going to look at so many Bible verses, both the Old Testament the New Testament, we're going to look at the Trinity and salvation and how the, the entire Trinity is working. And if you don't believe in the Trinity, well, hopefully this will change your mind. But either way, we're going to look at that. We're going to try to answer some questions that are really hardball questions about election, about eternal security. How do we deal with things like reprobation, where God predestined some people to go to hell? You know, that's to us on the surface, it seems like, wow, that's like a, the most horrible thing that could possibly happen. But there's actually reasonable and biblical explanations for all of these things, right? So so we're going to get into it, guys. I really hope this will be a blessing for you. I hope it'll, um, if you believe in election, if, if you're a Calvinist, however many points you happen to believe in, the point is really to believe that you're eternally secure. So my, my goal with the series is to edify you and to give you strength. If you don't believe in it, um, and you're open <laughs> to changing your mind, hopefully, uh, my goal will be to give you enough evidence. We're going to really get into it, guys. Enough proof and evidence and just knowledge here from the Bible itself that this is not only biblical, it's the only way that it could be. So we're also going to look at Armenianism and in contrast, again, Arminianism is believing that free will is is in charge of the salvation effect, right? So I'm choosing to believe, therefore I get, you know, I get grace because I chose to believe. So there's some real serious problems with that. And we're going to look at that and even provisionism, which is kind of this newer thing where it's in between Calvinism and Arminianism, which I personally don't really see the difference, but apparently there's a difference. Uh, but in the end, ultimately, my goal is to show you that these are, at their best, they are inconsistent positions. You know, the, the number one problem with Arminianism, or this idea that free will is in charge of your salvation, or I should say, that it begins your salvation, is 
really, and this is the controversial part, is can you lose your salvation? That's the number one problem. Because if you chose, here's the deal. Here's what it boils down to. We're going to get into this. I promise we're going to really, you know, fine tooth comb here. (laughs) We'll see how long this episode lasts, but there's definitely going to be a few parts to this. Look, if you can choose your way into being saved, then that means you can choose your way out of being saved. And that means you can lose your salvation. If it mean if you can lose your salvation, now you got to think about this. If you can lose your salvation, that means you have to work to maintain your salvation. If you have to work to maintain your salvation, which is the underlying belief that all of these Armenians cling to, they may not be vocal about it. They, you know, all the Armenians I've seen who are actually very biblically grounded teachers, and again, I. I follow many of them. I think that there's many really good teachers out there, but I disagree heavily on this because there's so many implications. But ultimately what you're saying is you can lose your salvation and you have to work to maintain your salvation. This leads you into a works-based gospel. Now, nobody who's biblically sound will defend that. They'll, they'll come back to grace and they'll come back to God, you know, helping you out and stuff. But really, this is what it means. If you believe that you chose to believe, and I'm going to argue that you can't even choose to believe in the first place. It's God that's helping you do that. But if you believe that, then you believe you can lose your salvation and then you have to work to maintain your salvation. Because if you can lose it, then you have to actively work or do something to maintain it so that it isn't lost. Okay, so that's that's really the problem. And again, at, at the best, these ideas like Arminianism and Provisionism, they are you're going to see how inconsistent of a position they are with the Bible. And again, there's a lot of really solid Bible teachers that def- that defend Arminianism with the Bible, but I think they're an error, and, and we're going to get into it. Why? I don't just say that lightly. I will defend it. Um, but that's the best position, or that's the best outcome. They are inconsistent positions. As you kind of survey the people who tend to believe in this, it gets worse and worse, right? And in a worse way, let's put it this way, uh, it's taking away glory from God, right? Because if you strong, here's how that works. If you strongly believe that you chose to believe and have faith, and therefore, you know, you got God's grace because of that. Well, there's there's a lot of people who didn't do that. There's going to be a lot of people in hell, right? Billions. So, at the end of the day, you must have done something. You must have had that, that even if it was 1%, man, you had something that other people didn't. And inevitably, that's going to give you some of the glory. And I say it's going to give you a lot of the glory. You know, I've, I've used this example before, but when you apply to Harvard, let's say, when you apply to Harvard and you get into Harvard, Harvard doesn't get the glory for you making it to Harvard you get the glory because you applied to Harvard. You did some of the work. Of course, Harvard offered the opportunity, right? But it was you who seized on the opportunity and therefore you get the glory. Well, if we think the same way about God, where God offers salvation and then we seize upon that opportunity more than the next guy who didn't and he went to hell, then you get the glory at the end of the day because you won that race. You see how that works? And again, the, the, 
people who are biblically sound will not agree with that, but that's really what it reduces to, right? And again, at the worst of this, it gets even worse. You might be believe, you might swing into a false gospel, a works-based gospel where you think you have to work to maintain your salvation and then you lose sight of who God is. You know, God's not called God of salvation so many times throughout the Bible. Yeshua, that means salvation, God saves. God didn't choose that name willy-nilly. He chose that name not because he offers salvation. He chose the name because he completes salvation from A to Z. So that's my goal, and really I want to show you with this series and, again, empower you if you believe in election. More power to you. I want to give you the biblical support to support yourself and in other conversations that you have with people around you. Um, but, you know, the question is, why Why do people hang on to it? And if you don't believe in election, eternal security, I should say, because Armenians, I believe, also have a form of, of election, but Armenianism doesn't believe in eternal security, not, not in the sense the Calvinists do. So the question is, why not? Such a such an idea is such a source of hope for us as Christians. And you'll see why as we go on, especially in this first part, we're going to talk about total depravity, which is we are incapable of making anything good come out of us without God's intervention. So the question is, why do you hang on to this idea that it was, that, that you have to have some part in this grand thing that's happening, which is our life and salvation and, and get, coming to know Christ and all these things. Why do you feel that you have to have some part in that? In the sense of a, a causative part, like you're causing that salvation. And the only answer I can come to, and the only answer I've come to by talking with other people, people who used to be Arminian, very biblically sound people, is pride. It really comes down to pride. You know, on the outside, again, and I'm not like don't get me wrong, I'm not attacking anybody who's Armenian, even some of the, like I said, teachers that I follow, I'm not attacking them. But I feel, I genuinely feel that even on the outside, it's, it seems like, well, you know, certain things that come up with predestination, they don't want, they don't believe that God would behave that way, like predestining people to hell, for example. And so they reject that idea and therefore reject Calvinism. I submit to you, number one, that they don't understand Calvinism well enough number one. But number two, I think that there's a deeper underlying issue of pride. You know, election or the idea of once saved, always saved, eternal security. When I say election, I mean it in a long, in combination with once saved, always saved or eternal security. So for me, those two, those three things all go together. But when you look at election and eternal security, there, there's two ways that this is incredibly humbling. It is the most humbling thing you have to come to terms with as a Christian, I believe, one of the most, at least. The first one is that you cannot take any credit, zero, whatsoever, for your life, your existence, the fact that you woke up to Christ, that you're saved, that you're born, assuming you're born again here, this is an assumption, but you can't take credit for any of that. It's completely on God, and he gets all the glory. And that's that's humbling. You have to surrender. And I, and I feel like that little bit of pride that's left in all of us wants to hang on to the idea, well, I did something too. Well, 
that's the part you got to let go of. And and that that takes some letting go of pride. And the second thing is it can't really be easily understood. There's certain things that even, you know, like I said, this is going to be a very comprehensive series, guys. We're going to go probably in more detail than most people would want. But either way, I want to be absolutely sure that you're completely edified with all this stuff because I like to be absolutely sure. But you know what? We can't be absolutely sure about everything. Certain things we just don't, uh, we, we can be absolutely sure about God's grace, obviously, but I'm talking about in the world, right? We don't know everything and we're never going to know everything. And so ultimately with election and eternal security, there are things that I don't understand. For example, where do we draw the line between God intervening in our lives and our experience? Obviously, we have some sense of free will, not free will like we can do anything outside of influence. I think that's a a false belief. But free will in the sense that we go through life moment by moment, responding to things. We have choices that we experience. That's our lives for sure. And it feels like we're doing those things. (laughs) And I'm not going to get into this this part because this is a whole other can of worms. But really, where does the line... It's a blur, you know, it's a blur. Where is it? Where do we draw a line between those two things? Between God being completely sovereign, which he is, and us having our sense of autonomy. Where is that line drawn? I don't know. That's a mystery. And I think those kind of mysteries we can never really know. Maybe we'll know them on the other side of heaven. But the point is that we can know enough to be sure about this. We can know enough to defend this and we can know enough to place our trust in God and his plan through this idea of eternal security. It's not just an idea, really. I, I believe it's a teaching. It's a doctrine. It's obviously it's obvious to me throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. So we're going to get into all that. But first and foremost, you know, what is once saved, always saved? Okay. A lot of people here, here's, let's start with what it's not. Okay. First off, once saved, always saved is not a license to sin. This is where a lot of people who don't understand this term, because it's often, you know, a lot of times what happens is, and this is the second point, or I should say this is related to the first point, but a lot of times what happens is people who claim to be saved, and obviously they're not based on the fruits of their actions, you know, say, well, once saved, always saved, and then I can just do whatever I want. Well, you're not saved. You have a wrong, and then the people who see that and say, well, you see, once saved, always saved is nonsense. It can't be that way because obviously there's so many people that claim to be saved that claim to feel the Holy Spirit, that, you know, do many mighty works in, in Jesus' name, you know, that passage. There's so many examples of people claiming to be Christians, and obviously they're not born again. Right, so could, does that mean that one save always save is refuted? No, it doesn't. What it means is the people who are observing this. So it's two things: the people who are observing the outside from the outside do not understand grace. That's what I submit to you. You don't understand grace in its entirety, in its entire ability to transform the human heart. Number two, those people who are claiming to be Christians who are saying, oh, I'm saved, and then you know you go party like crazy on the weekends and do what you used to do before you were a Christian, those people aren't truly saved. 
So none of these perspectives, both of these perspectives have nothing to do with the actual idea and teaching of eternal security. So just because you feel the Holy Spirit, I mean, look, there's a, I, I recently, there's a guy in South Africa, um, and his name was Rian Swiegler or something like that. You can look him up. He's a Satanist. He was founder of the Church of Satan in South Africa. And I'm not going to post an interview with him or anything, but you can look into him. He claims to basically have seen Jesus while he was doing a, a demonic ritual. Okay, that's when Jesus supposedly appeared to him. And he supposedly got saved. Okay. Now, okay, you know, let's examine further and see, you know, what is he saying? What does he believe? What's he doing? I'm not going to doubt that, but I do want to see more evidence. And if you look at the things that he says, he's totally off on demonic doctrines, new age stuff. I mean, he rejects a lot of the the Bible. I mean, he he still doesn't get it. So the question is, was that really Jesus? Well, no, it wasn't. Demons appear in the form of angels of light, right? So we have that throughout history. I mean, not even going to get into it, but Islam, Mormonism, both had angel appearances. There's so many religions and examples of people, even in the Bible, when Saul, we're going to get into it much later, but when Saul was just desperate to kill David and trying to still maintain the king, he went to a medium and she summoned a spirit. And that spirit took on the form of the prophet Samuel. Now, some people think it's actually Samuel. I don't think it is. Based on the reading, if you really look into it, I think it's obvious to me that Samuel, in quotation marks, was a demon. And and so in the Bible, we have obvious examples of these things happening. So my point is, once saved, always saved, is not does not mean if you claim to be Christian, if you claim to have some sort of experience, if you feel the Holy Spirit, if you see Jesus, that's not being saved. Being saved is having a change of heart. It's getting that new heart because of God's grace and having a new life, being a new creation. How do you know that? Well, you look at the fruits of your your faith. Does your faith have fruits? Right? If it doesn't have fruits, then you didn't really have a change of heart. And so that's where we that's where we get hung up is that people think, well, you know, it's just once they've always said it just gives people a license to sin. No, it doesn't. Romans 6, 1 through 4. Let's see what that has to say. Dead to sin, alive to God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in sin? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So, you know, it's very clear that once saved, always saved, meaning you're truly saved, doesn't mean you have a license to sin. Why? Because first off, you don't want to sin anymore. That's why I said earlier, people who don't understand this and who reject this idea, they don't have an understanding, I feel, of the power of grace. Okay, grace is not just a pass into heaven. This is the second thing. Once saved, always saved doesn't mean, okay, I I get a pass into heaven, and now I'm just abandoned here. No, as as you're going to see, first off, the entire Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is involved in our salvation. Okay, it's not only in, okay, it's done, our past is 
is taken care of, our future is taken care of, and our present is taken care of. We are, you know, Christ is praying for us. The Spirit is sanctifying us. The Father is drawing us. Okay, so you have all bases covered. So it's not just this past that gets into heaven and then, well, you got to make sure you work out your salvation with with fear and trembling, which is one of those challenge verses we're going to get into. That doesn't mean it's all on you, right? Sure, we have things that we are to do and we're doing. And of course, good faith shows good fruits. But where are those fruits coming from? Are they coming from you or are they coming completely from God? That's the question. So really what it gets down to, I think, is first and foremost, there's a misunderstanding of once saved, always saved. In my understanding, I treat it as eternal security, which is the more formal name of it. But some people, I can see the problem in that they confuse once saved, always saved with all the false converts that are happening today in the world where, you know, it's, oh, I'm saved, you know, and then they just go do whatever. So that's not being saved. You have to understand first and foremost, what does it mean to be saved? And again, it's to have a new heart, a completely different life. You want to do different things. So of course you're not, you reject the idea of a license to sin if you're truly saved because it hurts you because you know you're hurting God. So, you know, we have to remember that we're free from the law, right? Galatians 5.1, what does that say? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's Galatians 5.1. So why is that important? Because ultimately, in, in all that I've seen, people who, who again, they're going to cognitively, intellectually bring in the doctrine of grace— we're talking about people who are Armenian now, hardcore, like free willers. Cognitively, they're going to bring in the doctrines of grace. But in practice, in emotion, it really seems to me, from all that I've observed and seen, that it leads into some sort of legalism because you have to work to maintain your salvation. Right? Doesn't mean full-on open legalism, but it leads in that direction. The whole point of the gospel is to set you free. How are you set free completely? Because you know that God who is perfect, who finishes everything he starts, that he's the one that's doing the work. That's the whole point of the gospel, and that's what makes it unique to everything in history. So why is God doing the work? Let's get let's get right into it. Why is God doing the work? Because we can't. We can't do the work. And the Bible is very clear about that. And and this is called total depravity. Now, total depravity means we are incapable by default to have saving faith in God, to do anything godly, to, to lean into God. We just don't have that ability without God intervening in our life. Now, many people who think, or I should say many people who argue Arminianism, and who tried to sort of refute eternal security and Calvinism, they they hang, they hang get hung up around this point that faith is work. And they try to prove that faith isn't work, and therefore, you know, there you go. We can still have faith, and it's not considered work. 
And there's all these little biblical gymnastics that are done. But look, this is it's not about faith being a work. That could be argued for forever. The reality is, the, the real debate is, can you even have faith? Is there a biblical precedent for that? Is there experiential precedent? Has anybody, before being born again, were you on your road to God? Were you like seeking out after God? Were you hungry for the Lord, for the gospel, for Jesus? No, I know I wasn't. And I know plenty of people in the same boat. So ultimately, I think if you're honest, you'll admit that you weren't after God. You were, we're all in our own little worlds. So, you know, it's like abortion. It's like the, it's like the debate about abortion. Right, right now, the hardcore left is all about women's rights and, you know, what is it? Health. It's a health right or something. You know, it's supposedly a health procedure or, you know, uh, women who might die because of the pregnancy. I mean, just these oddball things that literally it's like, it's not about that. I'll tell you, if if we decided that a fetus wasn't a life, then I will submit to you, okay, then the argument will become whether it's, you know, uh, a right, a women's right or not. Okay, sure. Yeah, we can argue about that. That's or you're already assuming that a fetus isn't a life and you're going to the next step and everybody's arguing about that next step. But you got to go back to the first step. Is a fetus a life? Because if a fetus is a life at the day of conception, at the moment of conception, then the whole argument of women's rights is moot. You don't have a right over somebody else's life. doesn't matter if they're inside you. You don't have a right over somebody else's life. And so this is the thing that the left, and this is not about right or left. I'm just saying, you know, generally the left is pro-abortion. I don't think you can be a Christian and be pro-abortion, but this is what they bring up. And so in the same way, it's with this whole faith and works thing, it doesn't matter if faith is a work that you do or faith is a work that God does. I think both are true, you know, in some sense, right? I mean, again, where do we draw the line between God's sovereign sovereignty and sovereign, you know, power and everything and our own individual experience. Where do we draw that line? I don't know. That's a mystery. So faith is something that we can both do, right? Faith can be something that God gives you and something that you can do after you're saved. Let's put it that way, that you have, that you have an experience in, but you can't do it before God saves you. I don't think that's possible, right? Because ultimately it's, are you capable of doing that? That's really the conversation. And so I want to go through all these verses. I got, I don't know how many I got over here, probably like 20 verses and show you. And this is just like a handful and really do them justice. You know, be honest with yourself, listen to these verses, read them, note them down, study them yourself and, and consider what they have to say. So these are not in order, but Jeremiah 17, nine, popular one. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. There you go. 1 Kings eight forty six. 
If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And keep, keep this part in mind. Okay, so the heart is desperately wicked. We're born in sin, and there's nobody who does not sin. And the rest of the verses, and this is Solomon's prayer for the temple, but this, is, this was the point of the verse, is that there's nobody who doesn't sin. Okay. Now let's take a look at Romans. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Everybody's guilty, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Everybody's guilty. Everybody's dying because the original sin of mankind and that we continue sinning. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can, who can know how wicked it is, according to Jeremiah? Psalm 51.5, we're born in sin. I mean, you literally from day one to to when you die, you're, you're just covered in sin. You know, it's 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 like that idea of, of an object will stay in motion unless something else acts upon it, right? That's a, that's a law of the universe. So think about that. The heart is desperately wicked, and we haven't even gone through most of these. The heart is desperately wicked. You're born in sin. There's nobody who doesn't sin. Adam sinned, so you know it's inevitable because then he plummeted all of mankind into sin. And the wages of sin is death. You're going to die. So it's not like you have eternity to figure it out. You are everybody, until you're saved, is on a collision course with death that is predictable. And until you get saved, that's that force. Right now, I mean force like figuratively here. I don't mean that the Holy Spirit is a force, but... I mean it figuratively. It's God acting on the momentum of your life and changing your direction forever. But in, if he didn't act, this is the direction you'd go. Right? 1 Corinthians 15, 22, uh, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is the, inverse, the inversion that happened with um, Christ inverting what Adam did. And why did why was that needed? Well, because if you look at the next verse, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, yeah, we all die because Adam sinned. Now, there's there's a practical reason for this too, if you think about it. Adam and Eve, once they got kicked out of the garden and they started having children, imagine like living, you know, in a horrible place compared to where you used to live and all the complaining and suffering that you had to deal with, those kids, they inherited trauma. They inherited the ego. They inherited their parents fighting, blaming each other. They inherited suffering and pain. You know, and that kept being handed down through humanity. That original sim came with a huge price because it damned the rest of humanity to this inescapable momentum of basically inheriting the previous generation's mistakes, right? That's really, if you think about it, what's happened. And it's impossible. I mean, think about how much of our personality forms when we're so young. And, I mean, you look at three-year-olds, they're already knowing how to manipulate their parents. I mean, it's <laughs> it's unavoidable. 
the more I my in college I studied psychology, and it was I love psychology. And the more you study psychology, the more you study the human mind, our tendencies, you start to realize there's really it's just impossible, man. It's impossible to have something like faith in God, where saving faith to be born again to be born again is completely contradictory to everything about us. So that's why Jesus had to come and invert and basically invert what Adam did. Ezekiel 18:4 Behold all souls are mine the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine the soul who sins shall die the soul who sins shall die do you sin yeah we all sin we all die Romans 7 9 through 11. This is still continuing on this idea of sin and death. I was once alive apart from the law. This is Paul. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So through the commandments, through the law, we gain knowledge that we're, that we need a savior because we're, we're doomed. We're absolutely doomed. There's no way to be righteous on our own. And that's something I think every Bible-based Christian will agree with. But if you believe that free will is responsible for your salvation, or at least the first step, then there is some part of you that was more righteous than someone else who went to hell. And that doesn't jive with all of this stuff. So, Again, 1 John 1, eight, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Yeah, you're right. Now, think about that. If you say you have faith, you know, even if we just go by percentages, how many billions of people are in hell? And by percentage, I don't know, maybe what, 10%, 2% are going to be in heaven of all of humanity's population? And you had faith you're you're in the top two percent of humanity with your faith. How righteous must you be, right? But that's impossible. Everybody's sinful. Everybody's doomed. We're born in sin. We're heart is totally wicked. Ephesians two, one through three, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's the God of this world? The devil. Because he subverted the natural order and got Adam and Eve to be, you know, worshiping death and worshiping him indirectly because they obeyed him in the garden instead of obeying God. That's what it's all about. It's all about obedience and who you obey means who you worship. And of course, Satan wants to be God. So he he got Adam. This is very clever if you think about it. But God is infinitely more clever. But Satan was clever. He wanted worship. Adam and Eve feared nothing. They, you know, fear God, but apparently they didn't fear God enough. So Satan tricked them because he knew God would demand justice. God passed the death penalty onto humanity, and now humanity fears death. Think about that. How much the fear of death rules 
the world. Every, everything that you do is centered around, I'm going to die one day or I might die tomorrow, whatever. Live your best life now, right? I got to do this, this, this in order to, to get the most out of this life because I'm going to die. And in so doing, you give your energy to the world. Well, who's the God of this world? The devil. The devil gets worship. This, this sounds pretty crazy. Just follow the logic for a second. The devil gets worship indirectly from the people in the world because the people in the world have turned death into an idol. What's an idol? Something that you fear more than God, right? You got to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, not the one who can destroy the body. Don't fear death. That's the whole point of the gospel. But guess what? If you can, if you don't know if you can, this is another part I didn't even address, but if some people who are in this whole Armenian camp also believe that you don't know if you're saved or not. Right? So, so think about that. If you don't know if you're saved or not, if you don't know, if you, you don't know you're saved or not, you can lose your salvation. You got to work to maintain your salvation somehow. How is that power for you to resist persecution? Certainly, if you don't know if you're saved or not, I, I can't imagine the early martyrs of the church being thrown to the lions because they weren't sure about their salvation. So think about that one. Psalm 58.3. Here's another good one. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. The wicked are estranged from the womb. And we're going to get back to this when we get to predestination of evil, but they're strange from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. So what's earlier than birth? Nothing. From the beginning, we're sinning. And we're wicked and we're estranged. And we were all once wicked too until God decided to act and change the course of our lives. That's the election principle and that's why we have eternal security. Because God did the work. Job fifteen fourteen. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? There it is. The only one born of a woman that's righteous was Jesus Christ. Nobody is righteous. Nobody is born righteous. Nobody is capable of something as... So you got to remember, Abraham, Moses... I was going to say Lincoln. Lincoln's not even in the Bible uh, for some reason. Uh, probably because of Abraham Lincoln, but Abraham, Moses, David, all, you know, all the patriarchs, all the people in the Bible, they were counted as righteous because of their faith. Think about that. They were counted as righteous because of their faith. So if their faith was something that they produced, they they must have had something righteous in them. But if and that doesn't make sense. Certainly doesn't make sense with all the verses we've covered so far. What is a man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? So if your faith counts you as righteous, we're talking Old Testament now, and even New Testament, same thing, then there's some part of you that must have been righteous. Some little, even if you had a drop of righteousness in you, but it's very clear we have not even a drop you know what makes more sense? God, who is righteous, is giving you that gift. It's giving you that gift of faith. And that's really what it's all about. Genesis 
18, or sorry, Genesis 8, 21. This is God's covenant with Noah. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this is Noah did like a, an animal sacrifice after the flood. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. From the, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I mean, it can't get any clearer than that. That echoes some of the other ones we've talked about, like Psalm 58.3. We are evil from our beginning. (laughs) There's no way out of it. There's no way out of it unless God acts. But let's keep going. Ecclesiastes 7, chapter 7, verse 29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is actually a really good verse because, you know, one objection against Christianity is, well, if God is so good, then why did he, why is there evil in the world, right? Why are people, you know, there must be something flawed about God if he made us with the capability of being evil. And that's that's a faulty argument. Because what's happening is, you're ignoring the effect of our own just qualities, right? So when you have a knife, for example, I'm trying to use a good metaphor just to, to put this into perspective because I think it's clearer when we use metaphors. So if I if I create a knife, right, and that knife can cut really darn good, right? It can it can slice. I mean, you can just chop your finger off, no no problem. And let's say you do that. Like Am I going to blame the creator of the knife? Or do I blame whoever chopped their hand off or for, for not being careful, right? Is the knife to blame? No, the knife was made really well. Get this. The knife was made really well, but it was its misuse that causes the problem. You cannot make a knife that functions really well without the inherent danger of injury. So that's the thing. God gave us, you know, things like a conscience, the ability to love, the ability to have emotions, a self-identity, all these things, sexuality, all these things are good things, but they have the ability to be misused. Now, I don't imply free will through this, because either God is using us or the devil's using us. Okay, so this is the thing. I'm not saying, well, it's the person's fault. They they chose evil. No, evil's from the devil. The devil's the god of this world. Either you are a child of wrath or a child of God. When you're born again, you become adopted. So that's what I mean here. And that's what I think this verse is a really good picture of, which is God made man upright. He made him for the good, and he made man perfectly. But they have sought out many schemes. Why? Because the devil is the god of this world. We obey the devil. And because of that, we are committed to judgment with him unless we're born again. Let's go on. Numbers 15, verse 39. And it shall be as a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. (laughs) I love this part. 
not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. You're inclined to whore after. I mean, I, I just love, especially the Old Testament, God is like really just, he's up close and personal, man. He doesn't beat around the bush. You know, this idea that adultery and spiritual faithlessness are, you know, he, he always says whoring after other gods, <laughs> which I just, I just love that phrase because it's really, you're, you're basically, I'm the one who's provided for you and you go and sleep around with these other gods behind my back, basically. And so this is, you know, God's not being politically correct about it for a reason because it, it shows the depravity of, of mankind. I mean, Solomon built, God gave Solomon everything. What did he end up doing? He ended up building temples to like Moloch and, you know, all these baby child sacrificing gods in Jerusalem. So we are inclined to whore after our own heart and our own eyes. Well, what is the heart? The heart is desperately wicked. So do you see how this is all coming together? And how we're impossible, it's impossible for us to do anything without God intervening in our lives. We are inclined, we are just on that trajectory. An object in motion will stay in motion. Isaiah 64, 6. And I love this one too. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Even our best good works are like filthy rags to God. They are nothing. God is righteous. God is perfect. God is holy. It's beyond all understanding. So the idea that we can somehow muster up the faith to sort of, I don't even know how you would justify it, honestly, but sort of to to prove to God that we can have his grace or to, you know, somehow make God respond to you. That's another idea, honestly, which is doesn't make any sense. You're basically saying that your faith makes God respond to you with grace. That's That doesn't make any sense. God's not responding to anybody. God does respond to people in the Bible, but it's it's he's in control of both sides, man. That's the thing. When you read these situations, we're going to go through them. But he's sovereign. Yes, we're playing our part out, and we're, we're certainly having experiences, but you know, you're not bending God's will with your faith when your best of your works are like filthy rags. Deuteronomy 31, verse 21. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall comfort them as a witness for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land I swore to give. So this is God talking to Moses. Before they're in the promised land, before they get to the promised land, he knows what's going to happen, right? What happens after they get to the promised land? Well, (laughs) they whore after other gods over and over again, generation after generation. I mean, it's crazy. And he, so God is saying, look, I, even though I've done all these things for you, what is the context of this verse? God has supernaturally brought them out of Egypt. 
supernaturally escorted them through the wilderness, fed them supernaturally, right? Done all kinds of supernatural things, punished them supernaturally. (laughs) And yet they're still inclined, inclined. Think about that word, inclined. Like you're still leaning in that direction despite God like pulling you back. So think about what that means. Now think about people who don't have supernatural experiences. Do you think we have any chance of suddenly somehow coming to the realization that you should be born again? No, absolutely not. Impossible. Why? Because we were inclined to do evil from birth. Romans 3, verse 9 through 12. No one is righteous. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I mean, that to me, that alone is, it's it's quoting Psalm 14, but you know, that's, that's perfect. I think that that sums it up all in one verse. If you could have one verse on total depravity, that would be it. Nobody is righteous. Nobody seeks after God of their own accord. You can try to justify it all you want. It doesn't work that way. We do not have an ounce of righteousness in us to be able to, to do faith that would count us righteous. Do you know what I'm saying? We don't see God. We don't see God's nature instinctively. We don't go after God. Mark ten eighteen. Speaking to the idea of, you know, good, goodness. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. <laughs> I love this verse too because there's kind of a hidden, you know, like a meaning to it where Jesus is responding, you know, the guy says, you know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's like, first off, why are you calling me good? Because nobody's good except God alone. Do you mean to say that I'm God? You know, like, why would you call me a teacher? Obviously, you don't get that I'm God. So he's kind of slapping him across the nose a little bit. But the point is, nobody's good except God alone. Jesus was a rabbi. He knew the scriptures. Psalm 14. Nobody seeks after God. Nobody is good but God alone. If you're good, which God is, you can produce faith. Jesus was completely obedient to God. But if you're not good, can you produce faith? No, you can't. That's that's really the debate. And I submit to you that you cannot, based on all of these scriptures and more. Genesis 6, right before the flood. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every... Get this. This is this one in Romans 3, 9 through 12. I don't know how much clearer that it can get. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How many absolute statements can you have in... Absolute words can you have in one statement? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Wow. I mean, that to me, that's just like, and what was the context of that? Well, God wasn't really involved between Adam and the flood. I mean, not that we know of. It doesn't seem like there was really 
kind of just let humanity see what would happen without his intervention. And what happened? Well, look what happened. Like a handful of people got rescued. Everybody was completely wicked without God intervening. That is, That was done on purpose. There's a point to that. God is showing you, listen, if I don't intervene, you have no chance. There's nobody that would ever come to God. The system is too strong. It's it's a system. The devil created a system through death. And that system is too overpowering if if we don't have God in our lives. It's it puts you on a predictable path. And that's very obvious from history. Romans 8 uh, verse 7 for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God that's verse 8 the mind that is in the flesh cannot submit to God it cannot like it's physically impossible so we're gonna we have a couple more here Let's just go through it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. This is by the grace through faith. A whole lot, lot of great verses in here. I mean, it's all good. I mean, it's all beautiful. But, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We got through that one. But, you know, this goes on and says, but God being rich in mercy, this is verse 4, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his graces and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanships, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are, we were children of wrath until God intervened in our lives and created salvation through Christ and through the ability for us to believe. We cannot search after God. We cannot believe in God. We do not move to God. We cannot have even a drop of faith that would bring us into a saving relationship with God. The gift is salvation. The gift is faith. When it says, for by grace, and we're going to get into this verse later because it's it's a big one, but when it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, how do you read that? This is a big one. How do you read, and this is not of your own doing? What is the word this referring to? Do you think it refers just to grace? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, the whole process, is not your own doing. It, excuse me, it, the whole process, is the gift of God. That's the gift. The people in, before the flood who all got killed, they didn't have the gift. They were just left to default. 
to the Genesis curse, to death, to the God of this world. The gift of God is that he rescued us from an equal fate. That's salvation. That's the gift, and it's all glory to him. Amen. Final example I'll give you is Adam and Eve. And we, we kind of covered it with Genesis 6-5, but look, if Adam and Eve, who had no history, who had a perfect environment, disobeyed God and didn't have the right faith, think about how significant that is. That's literally God was brilliant because he created the ultimate controlled experiment through Adam and Eve, where that's the only independent variable. It's almost like you want to say, look, even if I gave you a perfect environment and I'm there and you can ask me questions and you know you have all your needs taken care of, there's no problems, you have no trauma, you have nothing to blame it on your parents, what are you going to do? You're still going to whore after <laughs> their gods, right? You're still going to obey someone else. And so this is the profound thing. If, if Adam and Eve felt what makes, and they were literally like, there, I mean, they, they were created by God physically. We're all created by God, but you know what I mean? They had everything, and yet they failed. What does that say about you and I who have been born into history, into the traumas of our parents, into a toxic world, into so many problems? We have no chance. Zero. Maybe even less than that. So now the big question is this, you know, these are just a handful of verses and I hope that you see the picture. You got to be honest with yourself because if you hold to Arminianism, you cannot do these verses and so many others. This is just like a handful. There's no way you can do justice to what we just covered. There's just no way. If you're an Arminian, Arminianism, right? You, you have to say, how do you explain this? How is it possible? Is it possible for man to have saving faith given everything that we've covered? Do any of these passages seem to suggest that we can have saving faith? And the answer is no, not at all, zero. How can we be humble? How can we repent and seek after God? None of that is supported by Scripture. Now, the big question is, what about all those people who did, right? You'd say, well, what about Moses? What about, you know, Abraham? What about David? And the answer is, yeah, they, they had faith, but their faith wasn't their own. And I'll prove it to you. There's so many examples, both the Old Testament and New Testament, that these people who are, let's say, the heroes of our faith, they had countless times where they doubted God over and over again to the point where if God had left them in their doubt and did not complete the salvation, complete the work, then they would have not been our heroes, right? So let's take, for example, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah 1.6, he just got picked to be a prophet, and he complains, like, then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. <laughs> I think he was like 13 um, when he got picked to be a prophet. 
Jeremiah's like, dude, I'm too young. I I can't be a prophet. What did God do? God said, listen, I'm going to. He said, actually, verse 7, which I just think it's kind of funny. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. You're not doing the work. I am. That's the point. That's what God's trying to say. Later, Jeremiah was like getting, you know, persecuted and just having, he has this lament in Jeremiah 15, where he literally, if you meet, we're going to read the whole thing, but like Jeremiah 15, 10, he goes, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. And he goes on, you know, in this is giant lament <laughs> against God. And you know, he even calls God a deceitful brook. You know, it's like, do you do you say one thing and do another kind of thing? And you know, these are these are big doubts, man. These are just serious doubts. And but because God had chosen Jeremiah, God is not going to abandon Jeremiah, even though he has all these doubts. And so he, you know, he comes in and comforts him and, and gives him strength. And Jeremiah was one of the main prophets of the Bible, right? Look at Moses. Moses, if you look in Exodus 3 and 4, he's famous for his five excuses. You can look these up. They're throughout the, the chapters. But, you know, basically, I mean, you can imagine he's sitting there in the burning bush where he's having a supernatural experience of God. And God's basically saying, look, I've chosen you. And Moses is saying stuff like, you know, I'm not really, I'm not that good. You know, why'd you choose me? I don't have any answers. People aren't going to believe me. Uh, I'm a terrible public speaker. Choose somebody else. I'm not qualified. He's literally like turning down God several times. Now think about that. Moses is supposed to be one of the main honchos of the faith. And yet, when he encountered God supernaturally, not like he just kind of came, yeah, you know, I should, I, I do believe in God. Like he didn't come to his own conclusion. He encountered God supernaturally. Probably one of the most famous encounters in history. And yet he doubted God countless times. In fact, one of the reasons Moses was punished, he didn't see the promised land, was because he, he, basically didn't stand up for God when he was supposed to. And throughout the time that people were complaining to him in the wilderness and stuff, he was going constantly got back to God. He's like, oh God, why'd you, why'd you make me leader of these people? Like, I don't want to be, you know, I'm not good enough, whatever. So his journey is a journey of doubt. If you really read throughout the, the first couple, like Exodus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, I mean, it's just constant back and forth. But was Moses saved? Of course he was saved. Why? Because Moses had some sort of faith. And God looked in Moses and said, gosh, you know, Moses, he's the one that I want because of his faith. No. It's because God was doing the work. God had chosen Moses for a specific reason to do certain things, to show certain things, to create certain precedents. That's what God does is create precedents. And if he's going to choose someone, he will make them do what they need to do, regardless of their doubt. Genesis 18, Sarah laughed when God came and announced that they would have, you know, 
They should be the mother of many nations. So, you know, Genesis eighteen twelve. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I still have pleasure? Genesis eighteen thirteen. And then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I shall return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. You know, and Sarah denies it. it. These kind of things are just kind of funny to me. It's like God's literally there. And Sarah's like, oh, no, no, I didn't laugh. <laughs> yes, you did. I can read your mind. I'm God. You know, it's just, this is funny. But this is the point. Like Sarah and Abraham were like senior citizens. And, you know, she was worn out. She 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 couldn't have kids. But God made it so. That's like proof right there that God intervenes and he creates the result every single time despite people's doubt, right? So what was the natural circumstance? Moses doubted, Jeremiah doubted, Sarah, Abraham doubted, and all these people. We're going to go through it. Like I said, this is going to be super detailed. We're going to go through it. There's so many people who we, from the outside, think they're super faithful and of it, and they were for sure, but they were faithful because God gave them the faith. Okay, Gideon, one of the judges in John uh, Judges 6, and Judges, yeah, Judges 6, verse 17. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And this is when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. And then later in Judges 36, 6, chapter 36, the sign of the fleece. Oh my goodness. And I'm not going to read this whole thing, but it's Judges 36 through 40. And and Gideon basically, it's such an obscure passage to me, but it, it just shows God's patience. <laughs> with the human heart. I mean, Gideon was basically chosen to be a judge and God told him, listen, you're going to have victory over such and such people. And Gideon's like, okay, well, if that's true, then, you know, prove it to me. Like make this fleece, you know, be humid and the rest of it be dry around it. And then, okay, now, now make it dry and everything. (laughs) And it's like, really? Are you kidding me? But this is the point. Like this is the human heart. And God is allowing this to show us in later generations, I think, at least to some degree, the frailty of the human heart. That we cannot, if God had not intervened and, and provided strength for these people, they would have never come to saving faith. Moses would have never come to saving faith in God and to lead people. Are you kidding me? No way. Elijah, another famous prophet, in 1 Kings Chapter 19, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So, what's happened here? Elijah just literally, like, just decimated the, the prophets of Baal with this test of fire from heaven. He proved that, you know, okay, like our God is the real God. And literally, like, that's like, how much more confident can you feel, right? Like, okay, God's got my back. And then like the next day, Jezebel chases him to kill him and he's running away and now he just hates his life and wants to quit. <laughs> you know, so so this is the point, like, and this this is so many times shown throughout the Bible, which is that even with supernatural things, 
people still don't believe. So people still lose faith. So what does that mean? That means that God has to intervene, number one, to change your direction, and number two, to maintain your direction. I mean, look at all these examples. David, Psalm 13. Not going to read it all, but it's just he's depressed and he's like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And he's just despairing his life and, and feeling like God has abandoned him. David, who was like the, you know, the king of Israel and famous, right, for, for so many different things. He came to that point where he thought, gosh, like I'm questioning everything. John the Baptist doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. This is in Luke uh, 17, or sorry, Luke 7, chapter 8, uh, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John the Baptist didn't didn't have faith in the beginning. He wanted to make sure. He just wanted to double check. Now, does that mean John the Baptist wasn't saved? No, obviously John the Baptist was one of the most, if you could have a righteous example of a person, even though he was still a sinner, John the Baptist would be it. But even he had doubts, right? Job. Job was a famous example. When Job got cursed, when when Satan, or when uh, God let Satan have his way with Job. Job, <laughs> this is why God rebuked Job, because God, because Job, basically, if you, re, I mean, it's a long narrative, but Job questioned God's judgment, questioned his righteousness in, in judge, being such a harsh judge for Job. He questioned whether God would, you know, have his back and, and restore those things, right? So Job, who was supposed to be the example of faith, Question God's judgment, his righteousness, when suffering came knocking at his door. Another great example. Another one in the Old Testament, Barak um, and Deborah in Judges 4. I'm not going to read all of it, but it's basically Barak and Deborah is a prophetess. She's a judge, and she prophesizes that Barak has to go and uh, take care of these Canaanites. And Barak doesn't basically believe her. <laughs> so he's like, well, can you send so-and-so with me? And, and basically, he doubts God. Even though Deborah, who is, you know, obviously a prophetess, chosen by God to be a judge, gives him a prophecy, he doubts God. And so obviously there's a punishment for him too. But the point is this. These are just a handful of examples. We'll, we'll move on to some in the New Testament. The one about John the Baptist obviously was New Testament, but look at these examples and really ask yourself, is it possible for, for man to have saving faith? Is it possible for man to even keep his faith? Look at how many times Moses doubted God. Look how many times so many people who had supernatural experiences of God doubted God and had to be constantly maintained. Well, what does that tell you? That tells you that God's doing the work. New Testament, Peter, when he was uh, given the ability to walk on water, 
what happened? He fell in the water. <laughs> God, Christ was right in front of him. The apostles, they, when the storm came, they doubted God. Uh, all the apostles, when Christ got crucified, they ran in fear. Peter denied Jesus three times. Now, Jesus said, if you deny me, then I'll deny you before my father. Is Peter not saved because he denied Christ? No. So you see the problem with Arminianism? You see the problem with thinking that your actions somehow contribute to, to salvation and not God? God is doing the work. Peter denied Christ three times. But Peter's obviously saved. Why? Because God regenerated his heart and maintained it even through those doubts and denials, right? Thomas, I mean, probably the most iconic example of doubt. I want to put my hands in your wounds. Like, geez, Louise, that's pretty pretty crazy stuff. I want to put my hands in your wounds so I can see it for myself. When Jesus fed the 4,000 and 5,000, the, the apostles were like, how are you going to do this? This was after Jesus had already done miracles, by the way. It wasn't like his first miracle. They've already been with him, you know. And he's still like, how are we going to feed all these people? It's like, hello. Martha, Lazarus' sister. John eleven thirty nine. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You know, she doubted initially that, initially she thought, it was like, oh, okay, Lazarus is going to be at the resurrection, but not, he's going to get resurrected right now. So she doubted. And again, this was after Jesus had been doing miracles and a lot of other things. So, you know, look, we could go on with these. There's so many. There are so many. But what do you take from it? What do, you, what do you take from this? If you're honest, you're going to take two things. Okay, the first thing you're going to take is humanity is totally depraved. It is impossible for us to make that first step towards God. Obviously, it's impossible. It's also impossible for us to maintain any kind of step that we do take, as is the case through all of the people that you just saw, famous biblical examples of people who supposedly had very strong faith, and they did, but it wasn't of themselves. That's the point. They didn't have faith of themselves. They were full of doubt. They would have never taken the first step, and if they did take one step towards God, they would have walked back 10 steps because of their doubt, their fear, their greed, their insecurity. They would have never been saved. They would have never been leaders. They would have never been prophets. So that's... The point, and that's number two, which is that God has to intervene and he has to maintain. Total depravity is the issue between Arminianism and Calvinism. That's the thing that people aren't debating enough. It's not whether faith is a work or not. It's are you even capable of faith in the first place? And are you capable of maintaining the faith? And so the answer, according to Scripture, is no. We're not. And that demands that God does the work and that he maintains the work. 
He who began a work in you will see it to its completion. He has to intervene. And he has to maintain. Otherwise, we would lose ourselves. And that's the whole point. Because if he does the work, he gets the glory. Hallelujah. And indeed he does. So this is going to be the end of part one, Total Depravity. I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope that we've covered sufficient material for you to see that not only is man incapable of having faith, but he's incapable of maintaining that faith. So if here's the point. If we could lose our salvation, we would. Guaranteed. Look at all these biblical examples. Sarah laughed. David went to despair. Moses doubted God countless times. People tested God. The prophets who were like in communication with God regretted the day they were born and they wanted to quit. If we could lose our salvation, if you and I who were born in twenty, you know, in the 20th century with all our comforts and distractions, if we could lose our salvation, we would. So think about that. Part two we're going to jump into next time. <laughs> Uh, it's going to be about God doing the work. And I'll prove to you exactly scripture by scripture, countless scriptures with a really interesting article at the end I just want to share with you. Oh, it's so cool. About something I read um, about a Christian's experience. It's a very unique experience. But it's all going to show to you without a shadow of a doubt that God is doing the work to save you, to take that first step. And he's doing the work to maintain the salvation. So God bless. I hope this has been a blessing to you. I hope it's been edifying and we'll see you in part two.